the arrival of industrialization is the single most important geological event in the history of Earth in the last 250,000 years. The mass of material that humans have now created exceeds the mass of all nature. So we can't fool ourselves into thinking that we're independent and separate from this system, which sustains us. The human system is consuming certainly non-renewable resources, but also renewable resources faster than ecosystems can regenerate. So we're destroying the fish stocks. We've lost a third to half of all the arable soils on earth. Some people say there's only maybe 30 to 50 years of soil left and so on. All of the renewables that are holding us up are being eroded out from under us by our own activity. But nobody cares because after all, humans can substitute for nature. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Bill Rees. Bill is a bioecologist, ecological economist, and the former director and professor emeritus of the University of British Columbia's School of Community and Regional Planning. Bill is best known as the originator and co-developer of the ecological footprint analysis, helping develop the model for ecological overshoot and understanding human beings' ecological impact on the planet. This is a spicy episode, and spicy in the way that Gen Z used that term. Bill obviously joins me to discuss ecological overshoot, systems change, the impact on the planet, what the future will look like. And despite being nigh on in total agreement with each other, we ended up going head to head on a couple of those issues. Which means this episode has its moments of sparring, let's say, before ending, I'm happy to report, in peaceable agreement. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Bill, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. It's my honor to be here. My first question for you is, why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it? Well, small question. Yeah, it's a good question, and it's a multi-layered question. Uh, the basic answer is that there's a complete mismatch between human mainstream perceptions of reality and the nature of the reality in which we find ourselves embedded. So we're actually operating out of a a socially constructed vision of reality, which is completely unrelated to the biophysical context in which the human enterprise is operating. So if you have one system that is completely incompatible with another, 
but operating within that other, then a crisis is absolutely preordained. It's going to happen. And it starts, you know, with, can I just rattle on or do you want to break in? Please. Please. It starts with our misunderstanding of fundamental human nature. So to begin with, the world is operating in our, I suppose, postmodern and even modern sense from a perspective that puts human beings outside of nature. It's called exceptionalism. So there's a generalized belief, it's not often articulated, but that humans are not bound by the same laws of nature as other species. That we can, in fact, control nature. That's a total myth, but it's part of this social construct that I was talking about. And that, for example, any resource that we run out of or use up, we can manufacture. Humans can substitute for the goods and services of nature. So if you believe that the human system is not bound by any biophysical laws, if you think that any connection between the natural world and the human system is irrelevant because humans can substitute for nature, then you have a mental construct that enables for infinite growth. So in fact, we have a mental construct running the world right now. It's a complete social construct called neoliberal economics. And it literally starts from the idea that the human system, the economy, if you will, and the ecosphere, the natural world, are separate systems. So if you contrast that with the biophysical reality, what we see is that human beings are a complete subsystem of the natural world. And in fact, if you look at material and energy flows, we're the single largest component of the natural world. Okay. So on the one hand, we have this mental concept going forward that we're separate and distinct from and unbound to the rules and regulations of the natural world. That's our social narratives. So that unlimited growth is not only possible, but desirable. On the other hand, the biophysical reality is that the human system is a completely embedded, totally dependent subsystem of the much larger system called the ecosphere. So you have a situation in which the human construct, the, 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 what I call a human enterprise, is, I suppose, physically juxtaposed with the ecosphere such that we are acting as a parasite on a much larger system. I've said somewhere that humanity is acting as the maggot in Earth's apple. So we have that complete disjunction. There's another component of this. Okay. First of all, I said human nature is part of this. Human beings are an evolved species. We never think of ourselves as an animal. In fact, many people are offended if you insist that they are animals, right? But the fact is that we are, and we have evolved to survive, and we're damn good at it. So the three things that I think are most important in considering how humans have evolved to survive is first, that we are capable of exponential population growth. Exponential growth simply means that every increment to the population adds to the reproductive base. And so you keep growing money in a bank, compound interest. That's all exponential growth is. Every species is capable of exponential growth, which means a constant doubling time. So when human beings maxed out in terms of our doubling time, 
was in the early 60s. We had a population growth rate of just over 2%, which meant we were doubling about every 30 years or so. Uh, it's fallen back since then, but that's not really important. We'll get to that in a moment. So the first thing is then humans have this capacity for exponential growth. For 99.9% .9 of the evolutionary history of humans, we never realized that capacity because exponential growth is a form of positive feedback. Each increment adds to the base and tends to accelerate the size of the base or increase the size of the base. But in nature, there are negative feedbacks. Disease, food shortages, other resource shortages, competition for space, conflicts with neighbors, and so on and so forth. So for 99.9% of human, say, 250,000 years of history, negative feedback kept us in check. And there was this fluctuating equilibrium between the positive feedback of growth and the negative feedbacks from nature. The second major quality of humans that we share with all other species is the a tendency to expand into all available habitat. So human beings have the largest geographical range of any major species on Earth. Uh, probably the only species that come close are mice and rats because they just follow us around. But we have expanded to completely fill all of the potential human ecological niche on the planet. We even inhabit places that are uninhabitable. Uh, if you think of Antarctic field stations, for example. So we have the capacity to manipulate our environments, to make them suitable for at least existence, if not life, um, far beyond that of any other species. And again, we've exhibited this in just the last couple of hundred years as humans uh, have gone, you know, to, literally to the ends of the earth. The exploration of the whole planet took about 50,000 years. That's the expansion of humans over the last 50,000 years over the planet. But science has put us into those last final niches. So we have this predisposition to expand in population terms, a predisposition to occupy all uh, available habitat. And third, and this one a lot of people choke up on, oh, it's not true, but it is true. We have a predisposition to use up all accessible resources, all available resources. If you think about it, um, I'm going to go back and reiterate a couple of things here. The human population, as I said, remained constant for 99% of human history, 99.9% fluctuated in the vicinity of carrying capacity. But think about the last 220 years or so. In 250,000 years, the human population reached 1 billion in about 1880 or so. So very early in the 19th century. Think of that, 250,000 years to reach 1 billion. We were then into the scientific and industrial revolutions led by Britain. And in the 19th century, we began to use fossil fuels with an increasing rate, first coal, and then petroleum and natural gas came in later. But the point is that fossil fuels gave us the uh, capacity to acquire all the food, most of our food is produced with fossil fuel, and all of the other resources needed to grow the human enterprise. Meanwhile, science had improved public health so that the death rate declined. So you have for the first time in the 250,000 year evolutionary history of humans, the opportunity to fully realize our potential for exponential growth. 
So in the 19th century, we saw the beginning of a major uptick in human populations. And in the next 200 years, we increased to 7 billion people. And then 8 billion people in just the last 8 uh, or rather 11 years. It took about 11 years to add the 8 billion person. So think of that. It took 11 years to add a billion people. It took 250,000 years to reach that first billion. So that last 220 or 200 years, two centuries, let's say, to make it simple, is an entirely unique period in human history when our science and technology enable us to realize for the first time ever the human potential for exponential population growth. And we did. So that in one, two, one, 1,250th as much time as it took to reach 1 billion, we made it up to 7 or 8. Now, think about this. In our mental construct, this notion of uh, infinite economic growth brought to us through neoliberal economics, we think of this last 200 years as normal. 2 3% population growth, uh, 3 4% economic growth is what everybody dreams of. This is what we want. This is the norm. But what we take to be the norm and the desirable is the single most abnormal and destructive period in human history. Do you understand what I'm saying? So our, oh, I do. our mental model is that this is the norm and we must do everything to maintain growth, not only of the economy, but even those countries which are now beginning to level off or even decline in population. There's great concern that this means the end of, of the economy or that we need the workers, we need people to keep producing and consuming, otherwise the whole system implodes. But what they're asking for there is the continued exponential destruction of the biophysical basis of our own existence. Where I want to come I want to come in here. Sorry, Bill. And that's I'm quite, sorry, like, I, I could go on for several in, hours. <laughs> probably guess by now. I want to interrogate a couple of points. Yeah. Um, so in particular, the second and the third, the human beings occupy all available habitat yeah. and that we use up all available resources. Yeah. And I want to keep that in the frame of what you said at the beginning, which is that we are living in a vision, not in reality, yeah. that there's this mismatch between human per, uh, perception of reality. I mean, have we not seen from anthropological studies that there's been a plurality and a diversity of human cultures throughout the ages? And that, in fact, there are human cultures that do live, quote unquote, sustainably um, within territories that are fairly bound, um, whether that's by cycling through territories in order to allow um, the resources that they need to survive time to reproduce. Um, whether that's by, I don't know, rejecting certain, you know, Western ways of uh, Western cultures, Western ways of living. It's quite, it just seems quite a big statement to, to talk about all humans when we're, we're such a diverse species ourselves. And we have the main diversity comes in our own particular way of organizing. There's many ways. Yeah, I, I think you, you've got a valid point that there are many diverse human cultures. But I think we have to put all of these in, in, in historical context. For example, one often hears that the Australian Aboriginals lived there for 50,000 years in harmony with their environments. But again, if you go back, I mentioned somewhere along the way that in the last 50,000 years, humans have expanded out of Africa through Asia and Europe and ultimately Australia and the South Pacific. But as they move, almost everywhere on Earth, what we see is the diminishment of non-human nature. 
So as for example, the Aboriginals uh, settled from north through south in Australia, they wiped out the, the megafauna. So yeah. what humans do when they move into a habitat is alter it completely. The low-hanging fruit go first. Uh, it, probably there's a burst in human population growth because uh, people are introduced to a new habitat with abundant uh, species that they haven't hunted before. But as uh, things settle out, they eliminate those major megafauna. And so eventually they are forced because of their only effect depredations on the environment, their ecosystem, to develop a fluctuating equilibrium with the remnants of the ecosystem in which they have asserted themselves. But there's nothing weird about this. Human, again, we have to think of ourselves as a living, breathing, energy demanding organism. We are a large mammal species. We are warm blooded. We demand lots of energy. And whenever human beings move into a habitat, they completely change the energy and material flows through that habitat at the expense of non-human species. So the initial period may be a period of a kind of semi-catastrophic adjustment. There may be a bump up in human numbers because they're exploiting an unusual abundance that hasn't experienced humans before. But then after a period of a few generations, things settle out. And as you say, we develop an equilibrium with the remnants of the habitat, but it is a remnant. So the habitat the Australians have lived in for the aboriginals for the last 50,000 years isn't the same habitat that they came into. Go to New Zealand. The the great Moas, the the 12 or 8 or 12 species of massive birds that were there just, what, 800 years ago, all disappeared shortly after the arrival of what we now think of the indigenous people of New Zealand. Well, this is a pattern that repeats itself around the planet. So what we see in, in the paleoecological record is that as humans spread over the earth, we diminished non-human life forms that we use for food or simply compete with. And so it's, it's not an unusual thing that we've seen in the last couple of hundred years. It's just extremely exacerbated, abetted, by advanced human technologies. Let let me put some numbers to this. If we go back just 10,000 years, which is roughly the beginning of agriculture, it's estimated that the total mass, the biomass of human beings was less than 1% of the biomass of mammals on Earth. Then came agriculture, very slow increase in human populations. But just 200 years ago, we had this explosion Now, in the course of that period of 10,000 years, the human component of biomass has increased to about 34, 36% in that range. On top of that, we now have domestic animals. Agriculture brought us the domestication of cattle, pigs, and so on. The biomass of our domestic animals amounts to another 60, 62% mammalian biomass. So humans, plus our domesticated stock, the animals that we live off of, comprise about 97%, somewhere between 96 and 98%, let's say, of the total mammalian biomass on Earth. So that natural nature has been literally, I, I use the term, competitively displaced because humans occupy the habitats, every available habitat that we can access that is suitable to sustain humans. We simply kick out. Every planet, everyone else. Now, people don't like to believe this, 
But just take the example of North America. If you go back 200 years, there was something like 40 million or 60 million bison that migrated annually up and down through the Great Plains of North America. That's an enormous biomass. And they used to say to my classes, where do you think that biomass is now? Nobody could answer. And they answered, they're sitting in your seats. Because human beings have simply displaced, competitively displaced, competing organisms from their habitat. And the okay. now, let me just say, this is really important because people don't get it. That you cannot have humans growing without destroying that which they are growing into, or at least displacing it. So that the, the grasses and, and the wild herbs that sustain 60 million bison are now used to sustain an equivalent biomass plus some, because we fertilize and all of that, of human beings all over the planet, because North America is a major global uh, breadbasket. Okay. But if that was 200, 300 years ago, that was when the Europeans arrived. Yeah. What was the relationship like between the biomass and the uh, indigenous peoples that had been living there? Well, again, it's a tricky one. Indigenous peoples had bows and arrows and no horses. But when they got guns and horses, they began behaving just as... You see, technology gives you this capacity to up your ante in your ecosystem. And what we see is that uh, by upping that ante, they become rather like us in their habits on, on, on Earth. But I'm not trying to put down indigenous ways of life. Some of them are quite remarkable and, and, and worth imitating because they learned eons ago a very difficult lesson and acquired the intelligence and the mythologies and so on to enable them to live with the, the ecosystems in which they found themselves. But the fact of the matter is that uh, we had, have you ever heard of, uh, what's it called, smashed in head buffalo jump? No. Look it up. It's a, a place in Saskatchewan or Alberta, I forget which, but where the First Nations would herd hundreds of buffalo over a cliff and they would just all fall down and die. And they would, you know, take the hearts and the lungs and liver or, or livers rather and, and the better parts and the, the rest would go to health. So where they had the technology, they acted just like uh, we do. But you just, but you, but you also just, if I may, contradicted mm -hmm. yourself by saying that there are indigenous populations who learned a hard lesson yeah. and have established how to okay. live sustainably within the ecosystems yeah. with which they exist. That's so right. it does seem that there's, you know, to sort of, there's these hard truths about sort of human nature that perhaps we need to start undoing as part of the mythology of like taking our place as, I don't know, sustainable stewards on the planet. Well, because we are going to have to find a way to do this. But you see, they did this after destroying their habitats, or at least uh, significantly affecting those habitats, so that they had no choice. But over now, look, we're not talking about something that you and I would sit around a coffee table and say, look, this is what we got to do. This was imposed on over periods of decades and many generations, as the influx of humans and the rise in human population slowly changed the systemic dynamics and heat energy flows through those systems. They had to become a part of their ecosystems in ways that they had not been when they first entered those ecosystems. Now, look, at human beings are now doing the same thing on a global scale. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are now, in a sense, on a global scale with our new technology, depleting the biophysical basis of the existence of modern 
techno-industrial society. And when that biophysical basis is gone, there will be a crash. And the remnants of the human population will have to adapt to what's left of the ecosystem, which may, by the way, be very different from what we've got now. We're rendering species extinct by the hundreds every year. In just the last 50 years, the surviving, remember I said that we've displaced wild mammals to about 4% of the biomass of the planet, of mammals on Earth. All right. But even that remnant, those populations have been reduced by about 69 or 70% in the last 50 years. So the expansion of humanity into nature necessarily, I mean, there's no way around this because if you have a pie that's so big, and we keep taking bigger and bigger chunks of it. There's not much left to the rest of species. And so we are eliminating non-human competitive life on Earth. And eventually, we will run out of the resources that we are using to do that. And we, too, will crash and have to adapt and, and uh, equilibrate with what's left of the global system. It's not a pleasant prospect. I don't want to pretend for a moment, but it is what has happened in many places before at different levels of technology. You see what I'm getting at? It, it, it is a trait of Please. humans to grow and occupy and consume. And look, at what about, I, I want to really underscore this on this consumption thing, because it's the one that people get rubbed up against all the time. Right now, we're all of accessible oil and natural gas, the readily harvested stuff is gone. So what are we doing? We're scouring the bottom of the sea. Oil companies and governments can't wait for the Arctic Ocean to become ice-free so we can get in there and dig for more oil and gas, even though that's a problem with climate change. But what it shows is that we keep going and we're scouring the bottom of the earthly barrel. We're doing the same with minerals. In order to make the so-called green energy transition, which is another of our popular myths, we're going to have to increase mining by two or three or four orders of magnitude, which means massive ecological destruction and toxic contamination of ecosystem. But it's to keep this consumptive and growth-oriented mentality that we've developed in the last couple of years going. So in effect, you have a natural predisposition to expose which under pre-industrial conditions was always balanced by the natural feedbacks, the negative feedbacks by nature. But what technology has done is, well, let me put it in these terms, human technological evolution, if you like cultural evolution, has vastly outpaced our biological evolution. Do you understand what I'm saying? So in, Bill, in the, please, Bill, Bill, I'm going to stop you. Please assume that I understand well, what you're saying unless yeah, I flag otherwise. But a lot of people don't. So what I'm saying is that we outpaced our, 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 our biological evolution and we've created a world of such incredible complexity that we, we're, we've lost control. Nobody's in control of it. Nobody is in control of what is going on on Earth today. I don't think anybody has ever been in control, though. Well, they haven't. But we have That's a the point. We had the delusion, don't we, that we're masters of nature, that we know what we're doing. I mean, when you hear of people who want to put, you know, geoengineer the planet so that we can control climate change, that's this delusion that we're in control. We're not in control. And it can only go wrong because we're not in control. We've already performed this massive experiment, the, the burning of half the fossil fuels ever 
over, you know, tens of millions of years, we built up these enormous stocks of oil, gas, and coal. We got through maybe half of the petroleum, at least, and, and perhaps as much of that gas in just a couple hundred years. So we've increased the pace of change beyond anything the world has explained or experienced, rather, before the arrival of the industrial age. So it is a singular period. It's a singularly unique period in, in the history of the planet. The arrival of industrialization is the single most important geological event in the history of Earth in the last 250,000 years. The mass of material that humans have now created exceeds the mass of all nature. So we can't fool ourselves into thinking that we're independent and separate from this system, which sustains us. We are literally in a state of what I'm trying to promote, of overshoot. Overshoot means that the human system is consuming certainly non-renewable resources, but also renewable resources faster than ecosystems can regenerate. So we're destroying the fish stocks. We've lost a third to half of all the arable soils on Earth. Some people say there's only maybe 30 to 50 years of soil left and so on. All of the renewables that are holding us up are being eroded out from under us by our own activity. But nobody cares because after all, humans can substitute for nature. So soils doesn't matter, fertilizer, but fertilizers are made with, guess what? Fossil fuel. Yeah. And so yeah. on. So, so yeah. We, I mean, we, yes, we, we, we are in trouble. We are just, we are, <laughs> a phrase I wrote the other day was we are a mad creature clawing at the womb within which we live. Um, That's good. That's good. Yeah. So you're more poetic uh, than I am, but you're saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, and lots of people are. And I suppose, you know, I'm increasingly attracted to the diversity of thought and to this idea that like, you know, the, um, the plasticity of humankind is incredibly exciting. Our capacity to evolve, our capacity to innovate, and I don't mean technologically innovate our way out of this, but also socially innovate. Um, you see it all around the world even now. People are rising up and people are organizing and coming up with incredibly inventive ways in order to reclaim community and reclaim some sense of power if necessary, reclaim the land. So I suppose I, I mean, I agree with you that whatever this civilization is, it's going to end. <laughs> um, and, you know, good riddance too. Um, but we have an incredible capacity to collaborate and to be co cooperative and to be creative. So I suppose in all of this, I mean, with everything that you've said, what do we do? We are in overshoot. It is likely that we will continue to overshoot because the people who sort of have the most power that is inequitably distributed within this system um, also have the most incentive to not change the system. But what do we as communities do and what is the vision for afterwards? What are the stories that we can tell? How can we displace our current perception of reality and try to get to better grips with the true nature of reality, as you put it? <laughs> okay, let's step back just a second here. What you've described is what I call life stories. There are dozens, hundreds of groups around the world are trying to think in different ways, to live in different ways on the land. And that's, that's a good thing. So yes, we have all of that capacity and there's all that potential. And I think the more experiments that different groups are trying out, the better. 
because we're going to need the evidence for all of those experiments. But I, I look at the mainstream because the mainstream is where the planet is going and the mainstream is what's taking us where we're going. So if you look at just the last 50 years, this is the period in which we've more than doubled the population. We've used up half, more than that, half of the fossil fuel ever used on planet Earth by human beings has been consumed in just the last 35 years. This is the power of exponential growth. So hugely important things have happened in 50 years, including the first uh, book uh, that warned us uh, of limits to growth. It was literally called limits to growth. We've seen the evidence before the U.S. Congress of climate change. We've had, uh, what, 27 COP meetings on climate change, a half a dozen formal agreements to reduce carbon emissions. There's been several formal scientists warning to humanities, all taking place in the last 50 years. Yet during that past 50 years, the pace of negative change has accelerated. So despite the best of our science, despite the best evidence you can possibly come up with in, in terms of climate activity and so on and so forth, the mainstream has not budged. In fact, let me go a little further than that. What the mainstream are doing, I call it a two-pronged approach to disaster. The first is that we're not disinvesting from fossil fuel. Last year, the government incentives to fossil fuel development uh, were twice as much as they were the year before that. So everything you hear about the divestment of fossil fuel and displacement of fossil fuels by alternative green energy is simply not true. We're investing in fossil fuel. Even the International Energy Agency and the United States Energy Information Administration agree that we'll still be 60% dependent on fossil fuel by 2050, which at the time the IPCC said we should be completely out of it. So, oh, that, but sorry, that but that also well, that but that also depends on where. I mean, we saw in May, for example, in Europe, right. uh, electricity that was generated by renewables outstripped that of fossil fuels for the very first time. No, no, what we're Rachel, seeing is no, that no, China. You're buying into a myth. If you no, I'm not. Yes, no, I'm not, Bill. No, 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 no. If you would let me finish, I'm not buying into any myth. But there is a difference between this. It, using the term "we" is really, really loaded. There are a huge amount of countries around the world doing very, very different things. I mean, China, for one, is heavily investing in renewable technology. Now, I am with you that I do not think a green transition is how we get out of this because of the ecological disaster that such mining would do to the planet. This is something that I investigate in my work. I'm well aware of all of these different moving parts. But nonetheless, there, there are pockets of change happening around the world. You know, talking about the mainstream, like Limits to Growth published in 1972. There was this kind of percolation of it. And then, you know, ExxonMobil drove the kind of fossil fuel playbook to shut down any sort of talk of transitioning off of fossil fuels using the playbook, the same playbook that the tobacco industry had used. And now we're having the same conversations again 50 years later. And yes, that's frightening. But by the same token... There's a kind of like willingness, I think, in the mainstream today to have these conversations because, as you say, the fundamental social structures of society are beginning to collapse. They're not benefiting as many people today because of this increasing inequality. Oh, I agree. The increasing inequality is, is egregious and, and should be addressed. Yeah. But let, let's talk about inequality. We, we, I want to go back to the 
two things. We've got some time here, mm -hmm. I hope. First yep. of all, I, I said, remember I'm talking about the mainstream, the global system? Because the global system is what's going to take us down. And the fact And when you say global system, you mean I mean, global system it's, of... It's just like, well, the whole global regime. I mean, if you add up all the numbers for the world, it's true that in some countries that are extremely rich and can afford to do so, there's been a big investment in alternative energy. But even China is holding firm, building more coal plants so that they have a 60% mm -hmm. A coal or at least fossil fuel based electrical grid because of the instabilities introduced by wind and solar. Germany, which has probably invested as much as any country in Europe in alternative green energy, is still at 76% fossil fuel dependent. And when you read numbers that, you know, 40% or 50% of our energy has been provided by wind and solar, it's not true. The word energy should be electrical power. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I said. Well, you may have, but yeah. it's not what most people think, which is what, I, what I'm trying to get across here. Electricity on the planet is 18 to 19% of the total energy supply. On yeah. Earth today, about uh, 4% or 7% of electricity is provided by wind and solar. Okay. 7 or 8% max wind and solar. But electricity is only 20% of the total. So of our total energy supply right now, only two or 3% is provided by alternative green energy, at least the modern form. There's still a bit of hydro and so on. So when you compare that to even in electricity, fossil fuels in the world provide over 60% of the world's electricity. In terms of primary energy as of right now, it's 80% fossil fuel. So yes, great inroads are made in some countries that can afford to do so, in the electrical supply, but elsewhere we have an enormous way to go. And if the target is is hundred percent renewable energy by twenty fifty, it ain't going to happen. It's just mm. not going to happen. In fact, if it did happen, the entire economy would collapse because it's so fossil fuel dependent. Understand this. People don't get it. That's why governments aren't. Uh, investing uh, I do understand this sorry I'm finding you yeah, you're, just, you're talking to a whole bunch of people and we're trying to convince the world to get out of the mythic constructs that are taking us down sure sure but this is but this is but yes and this is what this conversation is about but you know my audience they this is the, they get this stuff every week. They are, right, you know. I don't, yeah, I haven't. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what do you want? You have, no, you haven't, you, you haven't researched Planet Critical, but this is, you know, the conversations normally aim pretty high and me and my audience right. are aware of these things. And the question was also, what are we going to do then? Well, it's, a, what, what are we going to do mm -hmm. is not the same as what could we do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So for example, yeah. if we were really serious. And by the way, there is no chance, let me just make this clear before we get going, we are going to pass the 1.5 degree global limit on climate. We'll probably hit yep. two and we're heading for two or 2.7, 2.8 degrees. So that in itself is potentially catastrophic because it may put us into a runaway hothouser kind of state of affairs. Okay. Secondly, climate change is one symptom of overshoot. So even if we do what most people think we should be doing, and we use it to maintain the status quo, which is what most people want, and then it will be catastrophic for the rest of the planet because we're already in a state of overshoot. 
Overshoot means that the current average material standard on Earth is in excess of what the Earth can sustain. Right? That's, that's what it means. Mm-hmm. Right now, in the aggregate, we're using more of nature than can reproduce, can be regenerated, and we're dumping pollutants everywhere, vastly in excess of the capacity of the system to sustain itself. So yes, egregious inequality is absolutely awful. But even if we were completely flat across the board equal, it would not be enough. So many studies are now beginning to suggest we need a fi- about a 50% at least re- reduction in energy and material flow through the system, which means about an 80% reduction in first world countries. So that's, those are reasonable targets to get within the long-term carrying capacity of Earth. So what should we be doing? We should recognize that many of our critical sectors, agriculture, for example, transportation, for example, are still fossil fuel dependent and will be for the foreseeable future. So if you have to get out of fossil fuels, you have to also recognize that there are some areas where you can't get out of fossil fuels. So we should be allocating the remaining fossil fuel budget to those uses for which it is absolutely essential for the time being and getting rid of everything else. Private cars, sedus, all of the vacation plans, you know, to the airline industry. I'm sorry, they have to go if you're really serious about reducing your fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. It should be rationing and, and um, what's the word? I'm, Redistributing? Well, as I said, using fossil fuels for the, the critical uses. We should have massive social programs to redistribute wealth as well as incomes mm-hmm. so that we're not leaving a vast numbers of people high and dry. Because mm-hmm. by shifting out of fossil fuels, we take up the industrial complex that crumbles as a result, the massive unemployment, the civil unrest, the potential, uh, look, if, if we... Just look at what's happening in, in Europe right now, that war over a, a bit of trivia. We're now talking about war over absolute survival of, of civilization as we know it. So that, that might be the next step as nations struggle to command control over the remaining fossil fuel and other major assets needed to keep this system going. So we can plan for that. Does you, the UK have a, a plan to a cushion, uh, the uh, loss of economic output as a result of reduction of energy supplies over the next 50 years? I don't think so. I don't think any country does. Recycling, you know, people are into the recycling movement and, and the circular economy. It's a myth. Energy does not recycle at all. Energy is a one-way throughput. So you can't recycle energy. I, I, I don't I don't think I understand that because from what I understand, energy can never be destroyed or remade and therefore surely fundamentally it is recyclable. No, it's not fundamentally recyclable. That's the point. We're talking here about basic thermodynamic theory. If you think mm-hmm. of a, a lump of coal, that's a vast quantity of energy. Mm-hmm. Now, if I burn that coal, the energy is radiated off into space mm-hmm. or heats the room, whatever. You can't recoup it and put it back into the lump. Coal. It's the same amount of energy, but the quality of that energy has gone from 
uh, a useful or available state to a completely unavailable state. You have never seen a cup of coffee sitting on the table warm up yeah, on its own. Okay. It dissipates. So energy, yeah. okay, so let me introduce another concept here that I, I suspect most of your listeners have not ever heard of. It's the notion of a dissipative structure. So in physics, we talk of a dissipative structure, something that forms in the presence of a, of a major thermal gradient, a temperature gradient, and it develops as a way of dissipating that energy. A tornado is a dissipative structure. A hurricane is a dissipative structure because there's a huge energy imbalance between the warm ocean air and, or water and the air above. And so the system organizes, it self-organizes, produces a massive storm, which dissipates that energy. Well, the human system, your body is a dissipative structure. It creates itself, you're self-producing, by importing available energy from outside of yourself, converting a portion of it into yourself, as well as using some of that energy to do useful work. But you also radiate heat off into space, right? So we need, just to maintain and produce our bodies, we need a constant input of available energy and material from our environments, which happens to be the agricultural system. Well, multiply that by 8 billion and then add to it the, um, what you might call the industrial metabolism. All of the energy and material requirements needed to develop, produce, maintain all of the infrastructure of our society. So the human enterprise, all of our bodies, all of our techno expertise and, and toys and artifacts is a massive dissipative structure, which can only maintain itself and produce itself by importing energy and material from outside of itself, the ecosphere, and dumping the waste uh, dissipated byproducts back into it. And that includes 100% of the imported energy. All of it goes off as waste and a very large percentage of the material stuff. So no recycling process is 100% efficient. We're only recycling a few percentage of our total material flow from the economy. And look at this, Rachel. Even if we recycled 100% of the material, but here we are, no recycling of energy, it becomes dissipated. But we can recycle, in theory, 100% of the material. Okay? Now double the economy. You still need twice as much material. Twice as many houses, twice as many bicycles, twice as many whatever it, would. it is. So the circular economy only works for a very limited numbers of materials in a no growth circumstance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We really have mm -hmm. to get that. But the bottom line is this, that we are currently using far beyond the capacity of the ecosphere to sustain current average levels of consumption, which would be inadequate by most of our standards. We have on earth what? maybe 3 billion people who are living in, if not poverty, certainly materially deprived circumstances who want to come up to our material standard. And we're trying to, through such things as the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, bring everyone up to at least a decent material, Western European, Eastern European, somewhere like that, material standard. You can't do it on the planet that we have. So yes, we, we could do some of the things I talked about. Massive um, rationing of fossil fuels to essential uses only, the elimination of those sectors of the economy that are inessential and, and, and 
fossil fuel dependent, uh, redistribution of the, the wealth and income remaining in, in the society, and learning to live on a, a small fraction, 50% or less, of the energy and material flows that are currently going through the ecosphere. And a lot of people throw up their hands in despair that can't happen. And if you go back to the post-war period in North America, I don't know, the UK, but we had, I think, less than half the incomes on material well-being, but we were much happier. So there's a number of books, one that comes to mind, it's called The Loss of Happiness in Market Democracies by Robert yeah. T. Lane. And what he argues is that if, if, again, there's a series of standardized tests apparently that are taken uh, and have been continuously taken for several decades, but they show the decline in happiness, people's sense of well-being, self-satisfaction, of capacity to live well, in steadily declining, even as incomes and well-being has steadily gone up. Now, a large part of that has to do with uh, the increasing uh, inequity, inequality that you talked about earlier. So another wonderful book by uh, a friend of mine in the UK uh, is called uh, The Spirit Level. You may have heard of The Spirit Level, but uh, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett are the authors of the spirit level. And they show that in the world today, those countries that have the highest levels of population health and sense of well-being are by no means the richest countries. They're the most equal countries. So a subtitle of that book in some countries was, Why Better Equality? Now, why equality is better for everyone? So the idea here is that being rich doesn't necessarily make a country a good place to live. The United States is at the bottom of the heap in OECD countries in terms of suicide rates, alcohol rates, marital breakdown, and a whole variety of murder rates. Uh, it's because, uh, they would argue, of the massive inequality and worsening inequality. And countries like Japan, which are very little equality, have the highest level of population health and, and so on and so forth. I, I, I've been sometime since I read the book. So the point I'm getting at, though, is that inequality is a hugely important issue here and that we could have much, much lower material standards but much more equal societies and live in much greater you know, sense of personal health, well-being, population health, and so on. And it gets back to something you said, that the, the kind of sense of solidarity that can occur at the community level if people share the vision of how they want to live on this planet. But right now, I mean, with the, with the rise in social media, the uh, emergence of the, what the, the, the Oxford Dictionary said, we've entered the post-truth era. Where mm -hmm. There's no such thing. Nobody believes anything anymore. You can't believe the popular media. You can't believe the press. Everybody has his own story. You get president elected to the United States who, whose complete life is a myth. And everything he says is mythic, unbelievable, non-truth, and yet he has enormous numbers of people who subscribe to it. So you've got all of these kinds of weird forces operating in a situation that confounds the capacity for us to pull together in ways that, that make some sense. So again, I want to say there's lots that we can do and we should be doing. I mean, friends of mine have lists as long as you're on and whole books on the 101 things you can do to save your life in the planet, but we don't do them. We don't do them for all the reasons 
what we've been talking about. Well, some, like m- many, many don't. don't. Well, 99.9% don't. Let's put it that way. And <laughs> certainly, okay, no major government is talking. No, to you, sure. Okay. When's the last time you've been called the number 10 Downing Street to suggest to the prime minister how Britain should be coping with these uh, issues? Uh, personally, I've never been called the number no, 10 Downing Street, well, but. The Welsh, but the Welsh government, our neighbours, are doing really, really good work. They've gotten rid of GDP as a measure of prosperity. They're restructuring um, their governmental institutions so that everything is interdisciplinary and that climate and ec- ecological overshoot has to be the heart of all uh, laws and legal systems. So there is good stuff happening. Yes, listen, I don't want to dispute that that's what they say, but it's not what's happening. What do you mean? That is what's happening. No, that is what they've done. No, it isn't. <laughs> that, right. So they, they've said they've done these things. Uh, they, have, they have, I'm sorry. Have but, they reduced, they have have they reduced their ecological footprints by 50 They have banned all new road building in the country because of the carbon emissions. They've said they don't need any more roads and they scrapped 27 uh, projects. And that was purely because of okay. carbon emissions and ecological overshoot. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm still saying... That you don't need anymore. The population in Wales is going nowhere. And so they don't need the new road. That's not a big sacrifice. What I'm getting at is that the changes in lifestyle that we need to implement in order to achieve the fundamental objective here of the survival of civilization are, is not being undertaken by these kinds of measures. When, when, Will, when Wales comes out of the GB, Great Britain comes out or, or Canada, any place comes out and says, okay, we've made a huge error. The growth dynamic isn't working. In fact, it, it's helping to amplify and, and destroy uh, the earth, amplify our problems and destroy the earth. We've got to now buy into the model of the degrowth movement in Europe. You must have heard of that many, many times. I'm sure you've interviewed people about degrowth. Yes, I have. And you need to add to the degrowth movement of population. Nobody wants to. Yep. There's nobody seriously talking about a population management on earth. You're, I've been called many times a, a racist, a neo-fascist, God knows what, because I dare to mention the fact that population is a problem. Um, even the United Nations is now saying, well, it's not really a problem because you know, population will peak at 10 billion in 2086 or something. Well, my goodness, it's already past overshoot. Already, you know, so the population bomb has exploded. It's Mm -hmm. not, you know, it's a slow, diffusive, erosive, corrosive issue. That is uh, something that we're unwilling intelligently to address. In fact, the opposite is is the case, including in, in many countries in Europe, where the concern is falling population. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So again, it's this. This junction, this disconnect between the nature of biophysical reality and the socioeconomic expectations of the mainstream. Now, again, I'm not for a moment. I, I love what's happening in the lifeboats because they may well survive, but the mainstream could take them down. We get into conflicts over remaining resource pockets and so, so on and so forth. And so far, I will, listen, when you send me a little note saying, hey, guess what? I've been called into number 10 Downing Street to advise on where we should go. That wouldn't be, that would be a revolution. A revolution. <laughs> that would be stunning. 
<laughs> Lock on you. <laughs> well, I'll let them know that you've recommended no, me. Right, there we go. <laughs> Listen, my final question for you is who would you like to platform? Oh, um, I think you should talk to Rex Weiler. I sent you a note, actually, giving you all the insights into Rex Weiler, W-E-Y-L-E-R. For the listeners, could you just... Yes, Rex is one of the co-founders of Greenpeace. And uh, he's a a philosopher, an ecologist, a well-known writer, Pulitzer Prize recommended. Um, Just a fantastic and very articulate voice on some of the issues that we've been talking about here. He's probably much more optimistic than I am about the uh, following the roots of First Nations people, for example. I'm a little bit more skeptical, not because it's not wonderful, but because of the historical context which brought many indigenous peoples to their current states of being. Um, It's it's not necessarily the way most people understand. All right. Bill, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm so, I'm, you know, it is what it is. I am who I am. I think we're in a real fix, Rachel. And despite all of those wonderful lifeboats, it's going to be messy for the next few decades. I agree with you. It already is messy. It is indeed. But I think, but I think that's something that kind of, for me, helps keep my balance in that it's starting to get messy for the, us very privileged people, yeah. but it has been historically very, very messy for those who have felt the grip of European culture. Yeah. And so we will find a way through. We won't find a way through in the way that we are. Yeah, I have a, a list of about eight reasons, again, based in human natural behavior as to why we're not going anywhere. Do you know, here, I've always found this fascinating. I, I'm an ecologist. I was trained as a systems and population ecologist. And I taught human ecology for 50 years at at UPC, almost 50 years. The best educated people on earth about environmental issues are among the highest income 10 percenters on on the planet. And this best, I'm one of them, this best informed of human beings do not voluntarily change their behaviors or adopt sustainable lifestyles. That's a hugely important thing to keep in mind. Despite everything we know, we do not voluntarily make a difference. Now, look, I'm I'm interested in the age groups around that, right? Because like, you know, okay. And I recognize that what I'm about to say is not, does not come from a study. But colloquially, you know, there's a huge amount of, I have lots of friends that are choosing not to have children. I have lots of friends that will not fly. I've got lots of friends that have like radically changed their behaviors in the face of the crisis. Yeah, but Perhaps because our generation feels it in a way that, you know, past generations didn't. I don't know. Well, I didn't, I didn't have any natural children. I adopted two. I don't fly anymore. Uh, lots of us don't do these things. And yet airlines expect, uh, you know, a doubling in, in passenger travel over the next 30 years. So, sure. so yeah, it's not, there's no, look, it's, you said it yourself. This is a very diverse species. We have very diverse yeah. populations. Y- yeah. You circulate and I circulate in, in very tiny little circles of people who form our yeah. worldview. Okay. That's what life looks like to us, but it's not the mainstream. And that's why I keep talking about this mainstream. I can't even get 
a conversation going about these kinds of issues with my own MP. I've been told over and over again, Bill, don't bother. Our government is committed to perpetual economic growth and the maintenance of the economy. We've just spent, listen, $14 billion to bribe Volkswagen into building an electric car battery plant in Ontario because it will mean 4,000 jobs. Now, here's yeah. people think the EV is a wonderful thing. A world of, you know, 2 billion EVs is going to be worse than a world with 2 billion ICEs, internal combustion engine cars. Just the, the market today is moving toward the higher end large EVs, which means batteries that give you three, 400 miles of uh, range. But those batteries weigh a thousand pounds or more. And the carbon dioxide emitted in the mining, refining, manufacturing, the materials going into those batteries would give you 17 years of driving a normal car. So what have we yeah. gained? And yet here, yeah. I, as a taxpayer, I'm subsidizing the construction of a battery plant. And then I further subsidize everybody who buys an EV, he gets a, you know, several thousand dollar rebate from the government off of people yeah. who've decided not to drive. I drive, by the way, I'm not myself in that category, but it, we keep buying in. This is what I started out saying. We keep creating conceptual myths. We keep creating uh, a whole, whole cultural narrative to keep people under control and happy and thinking we're all moving in the right direction. When in fact, we're simply accelerating and undermining our own future. If, yeah. if the electrical trans, let's suppose I'm completely wrong about almost everything and that the energy transition takes place exactly as, as some of the great often, you know, there's several, why, well, you, yeah, let's, I think you're wrong, Rachel. I think you just <laughs> underestimate the power of technology. We're going to see 100% uh, uh, green energy transition at equivalent energy levels by, by 2050. Well, but why do we want that? Well, because it would maintain the status quo and enable us to grow to 10 billion and a half people without uh, being concerned about yeah. energy deficiency. Sounds crap. <laughs> Sounds like a bad world. Now you're talking, <laughs> now you're talking like I was a moment ago. And that's exactly correct. Because all it would do is to facilitate the status quo. Yeah. The, but the scouring at the bottom of the earthly barrel. Yeah. yeah. But I suppose the, the bits that, the bits where I feel we are, sort of bouncing off one another because like you know I, I agree with uh, much of your analysis but I'm wary of like words you know like we or mainstream because I don't know I don't know I don't know what the mainstream is you know because like I think in the UK the vast majority of people yeah no they don't have like the requisite knowledge or education around these kinds of like ecological issues but that's also pretty bloody deliberate you know we have like a press that exists to essentially facilitate institutional, corporate, and government control. Um, we've got governments that are in beds with corporations and, you know, scratching their backs in order to sort of benefit their own. You know, we've got people who are so ground down that they are worried about how am I going to pay my bills? Yeah. Not where is my source of heating coming from, but am I going to be able to afford to heat my home? Yeah. Like, so there is, to me, it's like, there isn't a mainstream. There's like, this is system dynamics, right? There's like all of these incredibly complicated moving pieces that are interlocuting and their relationships are sort of like creating a flow, but everybody's kind of trapped in it, you know? Well, of course. And yeah, if but we that, can... but that's, that's exactly mm -hmm. what I've been saying. See, the people you're talking about, um, 
are victims of this mainstream initiative that you yourself described. Governments in bed with corporations. Uh, we've got a situation in which there's no direction from the top that really no. addresses the, just business is that's usual. right it's that yeah. addresses the concerns of ordinary people in fact yeah. i mean you know we're suffering from inflation and and so on and so yeah. forth and what's the government's response it's to facilitate further growth we've got a well you know there's a contra contradiction there we want to maintain the economy but not too much because if you get too much going then inflation itself increases but we're not going to undertake the radical tax reform necessary to redistribute wealth so that the ordinary people you were talking about don't have to be so concerned about where the next meal is coming from. In Canada, I don't know, in the UK, we have something called food banks where people- Yeah, we've uh, got record numbers Exactly. So yeah. uh, even as the economy grows to unprecedented heights, even as the, the salaries of our corporate chieftains yeah have reached yeah. unprecedented yeah. heights, right. ordinary people are finding it increasingly difficult to put food on the table. And by the way, yeah. it's going to get worse because food is produced using fossil fuel and yeah. fossil fuel is getting... So we've got a huge problem here that the mainstream, Rachel, is not addressing. It's simply but not addressing. I suppose, do you know what it is? I suppose I just want to like parse a little bit. Mm. Because I think when we say we or we say mainstream, it kind of makes it harder to then undo or challenge those narratives. Like I would argue that it is like a very small group of people that have an unequitable amount of power and influence within a system and are act upon that system to behave in that way. But nonetheless, there they are. And the vast majority of people around the world want a better life. Mm -hmm. They want to spend more time with the people they love. Yeah. They want to eat food that is more locally sourced. They want time off. They don't want to be trapped into bloody wage slavery. Do you know what I mean? It's mad that it's still going on today. They don't want to see Bezos and Musk and their wealth like skyrocket. You know, that's that they, they might still want to go on holiday and like maybe we'll have to talk to them about that, you know, and say you're gonna have to get the train instead. But this is the thing, you know, I think like the mainstream are crying out, crying out for change, desperate, desperate, desperate for change. And it is a very small okay. group of people who are blocking that change. And I think that's an important narrative flip. Well, I, 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 it's an interesting story. I, I don't disagree with much of it, but I also know that any major attempt by governments that I have seen to make significant changes in the direction we're talking about are resisted massively by ordinary people. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay, but that, well, so where's this mainstream? I'm saying that, they, look, I think it's true. Uh, you said a moment ago that governments are in the pockets of much of the industry. If you look at, at, at the United States, ostensibly one of the most powerful countries on earth, you have to be a millionaire to run for Congress or, or the Senate. Yeah. And you spend millions of dollars on your campaign, which is now essentially a continuous process throughout the life of your time in politics. And if you're being subsidized to that extent by some corporate entity, they expect you to behave in ways that benefits their bottom line, not they benefit yeah. going to the ordinary. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that, that is, okay. So when I talk about mainstream, those are the folks I'm talking because they are running the show. They're not in control of the earth, the, the ecosphere, but they are certainly running the, the uh, governmental and corporate infrastructure 
upon which the whole of this urban uh, human enterprise functions at the present time. And the wishes of ordinary people, there's several studies in, again, I'm more familiar with the North American than European. There's several studies to show that the views and wishes of ordinary people have zero influence on the, po mm -hmm. on the politicians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you looked at well, Medicare, the United States has no Medicare. It's all private funded medical health system, basically, for the majority of people. There's some exception, military and the government people, for example. But the point is, most people want it. Mm -hmm. The majority mm -hmm. want it, but it's not yeah. going to happen. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to happen. Anyway, we, that's what I mean by mainstream. So you, okay. you're talking about what, what, what I think of as, as, in a sense, the proletariat, right? The, the mm -hmm. ordinary people work mm -hmm. victims of what the mainstream is doing. But it's, you're like in a train. The train is rolling forward. The mainstream controls the engine and the caboose and, and, and owns the cars. And we're passengers. We can scream bloody murder about the thing going too fast or too slow or the food being crappy. But so far, they're not listening. Yeah. Okay. Here's hoping we'll find a way. We will. To make them listen. Okay. There's a wonderful essay. You can find it online called The Pitchforks Are Coming. Oh, great. Okay. I look forward to reading that. It's written by a millionaire to his fellow millionaires. And he says, look, we can't keep operating this way. There will be revolution. And in fact, if you really want social change, Rachel, I think this is something we might have talked about earlier. There's many models of social change. You and I are engaged now in, in something called social learning. It takes decades, okay, just for ideas to infiltrate and, and mm -hmm. get to the point where they influence the behavior of the vast majority of people. If you want rapid change, work at the other end of the spectrum. It's millions of people in the streets with pitchforks. Revolution induces rapid change. It's unfortunately chaotic and a lot of people get hurt, but it may actually be preferable to allowing the system to go to its ultimate conclusion, which might be societal collapse under the influence of a combination of, of climate change, because we're headed for two degrees warming easily, and we're headed for massive resource shortages because we're depleting our energy and, and, and critical mineral supplies willy-nilly, just to maintain the status quo. We're struggling to maintain the status quo when the status quo, I call it business as usual by alternative means, if you bring in the uh, alternative energy, but it's just business as usual. And if you do not understand, I'm sure you do and your listeners do, but if we don't get as a culture that business as usual is what is destroying us, then what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.